0: Hello, and welcome to Power That Matters. I'm your host, Tom Banks. Our mission is to maximize communication with our customers, specifiers, distributors, and partners, sharing the latest news, trends, and insights into the world of emergency power management. Toward this end, each week we'll dive deep into emergency power technology and its application across an incredibly wide spectrum of needs and environments. With me today is Adam Hothschild, a 20-year veteran of the power conditioning and backup industry and founder of ALH Power Systems in Elgin, Illinois, which was recently acquired by the Fortune 500 company Sunrise Electric. Adam, give us some of the backstory of Adam Hothschild and his experience in the power management business.
1: When I started ALH in 2011, I thought... You know, I'm gonna stay on my own. I'm never gonna merge into one of those bigger multi conglomerate companies. But there's only so much that you can do yourself. You know, there's only so much time in a day. And I found myself working 16, 18 hour days for the first uh, probably four, five, six years that I was in business. And you know, you, you can't do everything by yourself. You've got to have a good team around you. And um, it takes a while and a lot of resources to build that team. And I didn't necessarily have those resources at hand. Uh, but I had a lot of good contacts and people that I worked with in the industry. A lot of people noticed that ALH Power Systems was an up-and-coming player in the industry. We were capturing all of the high-profile industrial application projects in and around Chicago. We started branching out of Chicago and doing industrial projects all over the USA. We did uh, a Buena Vista power station out in California. We did several power stations in Utah, did a couple in New Mexico. We started doing a lot of hydro power plants uh, for the Tennessee Valley Authority. They call it the TVA, and they operate. And you'd think with a name like T.VA that they are Tennessee Valley Authority that they'd only operate things in Tennessee, but that's not the case. They handle South Carolina, North Carolina, Ohio. Um, you know, all the way into Kentucky, Tennessee, down to Georgia. Uh, but they've got all these hydro plants that have um, been on the map for many, many years, going back to the early 1900s. They originally put these hydro power stations in to capture the power of that the running water. Provided So that running water going over a dam has a lot of energy behind it. And they figured out a way to put a rotating device with fins on it so that when the water's coming over the dam, it rotates this, um, this alternator and that ends up creating electricity. And this is how they provided power to people who were in remote areas where it didn't make sense to run copper cable from Commonwealth Edison or whatever Edison power station uh, is powering up the East Coast. It just didn't make sense to run hundreds, sometimes thousands of miles of copper cable. So there was a lot of people in the early 1900s in rural America that uh, still weren't electrified, and there came um, a a company that came along and they said, hey, we're going to take these hydropower plants and we're going to turn them into electric production stations. And they did that, and it worked very well for a very long time. Um, But now that the technology behind hydropower has gotten so much better and so much more efficient. They're able to produce megawatts of power off of small dams. Uh, And and they literally, these aren't like waterfalls that existed and they just put an alternator underneath and and captured it. They would take uh, rivers, dam them up, turn them into lakes, and then put, um, they would create a waterfall-type scenario and then capture that power of the waterfall. And And so now that we've gotten into much more efficient uh, power conversion technologies, they decided to upgrade and modernize all these hydro stations that, that are around the, the USA, mostly on the East Coast. And um, so I, I got a call from this company that said, "Look, we're partnering with Tennessee Valley Authority. We're going to be modernizing all these old hydro plants, uh, but the thing is, is that we have to have backup or emergency power systems in all of these stations." And and they said, "You know, we can't. We, we've we've tried putting commercial UPSs into these installations in years past, but." Commercial UPS never lasted very long, Um, and and it's because those those installations are not the climate-controlled data centers that UPS systems are going into today. They're uncontrolled environments with humidity and uh, wetness, condensation, um, you know, cold in the winter, very hot in the summer and U- commercial UPS and commercial UPS batteries they, they, they like to be at 77 degrees just like us humans mm-hmm. and for every 10 degrees above or below 77 you have the life of a battery. Okay, So if a battery is rated for 10 years And and you sell a a a, most commercial UPS's have a design life rating of ten years, and if you put that UPS and batteries into an uncontrolled uh, space, you're gonna at a minimum half the life of the system. So these people went through a lot of commercial UPS's when that 10-year when that design life UPS didn't last 10 years. They thought that that manufacturer just failed at what they were trying to accomplish. And they went out and they bought another commercial UPS or commercial lighting inverter. And they did this several times before they brought in someone like me who explained to them why those commercial systems don't work in their uncontrolled environments. And really, there's a lot of people around the country that simply do not understand the difference between a commercial designed UPS or lighting inverter as opposed to an industrial designed UPS or lighting inverter. And that's mainly what I try to educate the consumers, the design engineers, the end users, the people who apply these on a daily basis, I basically try to educate them on the differences between commercial and industrial designs.
0: It's, it's amazing when I speak with people and they go, why do you have a harsh configuration for your inverters, harsh environments? And that's exactly why. Because... Everything isn't a data center. Everything isn't uh, a telephone switching environment or your office. So it's these harsh environments put a put a real really stress the technology, and, and as you said, can have the life of the batteries. What exactly? What's your back- Do you have a background in engineering? Oh,
1: well, uh, and kind of a kind of a funny story. So. I I I I do in an inadvertent way. Um, so my when I was five years old, I took a a I got a transistor radio for Christmas. You remember those little radios with the dial oh, yeah. on the side, and and it was like that handheld thing, and it had that plastic wrist strap, and and I got one of those for Christmas when I was five years old. And the first your, thing I did, you're showing me,
0: Adam. You you're showing yeah. how old you are.
1: <laughs> I know, I know, because uh, we're talking. This is back in 1977, um, and 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 the first thing I did was I took that radio apart. I wanted to see what made it work inside. So I always had a drive to to understand and uh figure out electronics always had that electrical um interest and and so When I became 16 years old, got my first car, first thing I did was I put a stereo system in it, upgraded the stereo. And by upgrading the stereo, I ended up stressing all the other electrical components in the car and had to start replacing the alternator and the starter and the fuse blocks and the wiring and all that. And and so uh, I took my passion for audio and I decided, you know what, I'm going to go to college for electrical engineering. I'm going to somehow use that to get into the audio industry. And and so I went to Southern Illinois University freshman year, um, finished out my freshman year, came home for summer. And instead of going back to Burger King and flipping Whoppers, I decided that you know, I'm I'm gonna start my own audio business and I started the first home theater company that existed around Chicago. Okay? So I started um, A L H uh home theater products and and we started uh marketing home theaters in about 1991 this was. We were marketing home theaters to people in the big mansions on Lake Michigan. You're talking about uh, these suburbs right outside Chicago where all the the Fortune 500 companies that are in the city their uh, financial officers and presidents and all that have these mega mansions right outside the city and, and all along the lakeshore. And so I started marketing home theaters well before anybody was really putting them in. And, and so there was a company, uh, what was their name? Um, and I think it was, uh, it was Columbia Audio. They were an audio store in Highland Park, Illinois. And that's all that they did was stereos, home home audio systems, not theater. It was just Columbia Audio. And they took a, a, a notice at what I was doing because I started selling home theaters to some of the Chicago Bulls. I don't know if you remember back in the early 90s when the Chicago Bulls were absolutely on fire. And I ended up doing a home theater for Scotty Pippen, who was uh, Michael Jordan's right-hand man um, in in the heyday of the Bulls. And then Michael Jordan saw Scotty Pippen's home theater, and he had to have one. So I did Michael Jordan's new home in Highland Park. And then I ended up doing a home theater for Mr. T. I don't know if you remember Mr. T. He had that mohawk and, and, and... well, she talked about fool, you know, he had that, uh, that, that stick going on. And so I was doing home theaters for some high-profile clients, and I was buying the gear for those theaters from a company called Columbia Audio in Highland Park. And, and so when I was going to go back to school, I decided, well, you know, we'll put the company on hold. I'll finish out getting my degree. I'll come back to it. Well, they ended up making me an offer to buy ALH Home Theater. And I decided, you know, when you're in college, you don't have a lot of money. And so when somebody like that puts a big offer in front of you, and you know you still got to complete your degree, and you're going to find your own way in life. It may not be with home theater. That was just a thing I was doing at the time. The check looked very nice, and I went ahead and I sold out. And that company now is called Columbia Audio and Video. And, and um, so th- they got that from buying my theater company. and They were one of the first um, uh, big companies to really market home theater on a, on a large basis. So it, it was kind of neat that I found my way into the industry the way that I have through a passion with uh, electronics and audio and then into home theater And and then I ended up working for Kodak and Xerox, working on their high-speed reprographic equipment. Uh, I just always had this ability to figure out electronics, understand it. And and so I was, uh, you know, come back out of college, sophomore year for summer, and I started doing some work for Xerox. And then Kodak hired me away from Xerox, and they allowed me, instead of having to travel all over the United States working on high-speed repro equipment, Kodak said, we've got enough of a market in Chicago that you won't have to travel anymore. And since this was my summer off of school, not traveling sounded great. I wanted to be home, you know, come back, see your friends, see your family, uh, spend time with your girlfriend, all that. So. Um, I started working for Kodak in um, 1994 and I had escalated through the rink so quickly I became service manager for Kodak Reprographic Equipment and I had nine technicians, all of them much older than I was. So I had a lot of problems with guys that didn't like taking direction from a snot-nosed punk as they would sometimes refer to me, and, and but I was able to uh, capture their respect, and in you know going on these service calls with them, and they saw that I had the aptitude and whatnot, and and I ended up earning the respect of my colleagues, and and things were going very well, uh, so well, I kind of got up to a salary that I. I never thought I would be at as a sophomore in college, you know, second year of college. Um, and and I decided not to go back to school. I decided to just let's see where this goes. OK, so I didn't go back to Southern Illinois University. I didn't finish my engineering degree. And so one day, go ahead.
0: You're in good company with in terms of Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and, and a and a. A plethora of other people that that found industry offered a a better path for them than academia.
1: You know, that's that's funny that you say that. That's that's exactly correct. And and I thought that well, you know, th- this is where I'm going to be. I'm obviously going to be in, in in this market for a while. And and I had sent uh, one of my technicians out to uh, a company. Um, outside of Chicago by the name of ProTech Power. And and I had a tech go out there to fix their reprographic graphic machine. And we get a call back from the company and they said, hey, your tech was out here. And the machine, you know, he fixed it, but now it's broken again. And that's what in the industry we call the recall. And you always wanted to avoid recalls, So we send the, the same tech back out there and he fixes it, and he leaves, and a couple days later, another recall. So I send a more senior tech out there. He goes out, fixes it, couple days later, another recall. This time, ProTech Power is saying, look, we've spent a lot of time down. We produce uh, technical documents here in-house, and it's the lifeblood of our business. We can't be down. We're going to cancel our contract with Kodak. We're going to go to Xerox. And I said, hang on, let me come out there. Let me see what I can figure out, why this is happening. Let me see if I can fix this. So as the service manager, I went out there and I fixed this thing. I said, it's fixed. However, I'm going to order some new parts for you guys. Those parts will be in in two weeks. I will personally be back to put them in but you will not have any problems in between those two weeks. So I went back out there in two weeks when those parts came in, and I put them in, and I said, you guys are all good to go. You're not going to see me or another one of my techs for at least a year till we come back to do a maintenance on your machine. So I'm walking out to my car, and I hear, hey, hey, you. And I'm me, and I turn around and I'm thinking, Great, somebody's coming out to yell at me and say, This thing just broke again. Get back in here. Well, I got this guy, he's like six foot five, walking up to me. I'm getting a little bit nervous. And he says, You ever thought about getting into sales? And I said, um, Well, I've often been told throughout my life that I should get into sales, but it's something that I avoided because for some reason, I associated the, the sales title as a car salesman, a vacuum cleaner salesman. I don't know why I had that stereotype, but I thought, Every salesman had to be a fast talker, uh, working on commission, right? And and I said, So I've often been taught I should go into sales, but it's that that's not the career path I've I've you know, migrated towards. And he goes, Have you ever thought about getting into technical sales where You have to have a a technical understanding. He said, what's your electrical aptitude? And I said, well, I can run circles around most electrical engineers. And he said, that's great. And he said, why don't you come back in a couple of days and let's talk. And, And they ended up making me an offer, a base salary offer that was probably about 20000 more than I was making with overtime and bonuses with Kodak. And, and so I obviously took the opportunity, and this was 1999, and, that, and that's how I ended up in the UPS business. This company, ProTech Power, was looking for good sales guys in 1999 because we were on our way into Y2K. You remember that, sure. where everybody was afraid that at, in the year 2000, all the computers were not going to understand the three zeros, and that they were all going to glitch and power down, and that everybody was going to be without power. There was going to be mass power outages throughout the USA. So there, this was also the heyday of the Internet boom. You had companies like Oracle and Microsoft and um, AOL and just all these companies that could not afford to go down. And so they were all putting in their own uh, in-house power systems to ensure when and if Y2K happened that they were not going to be out, that they were self-sufficient with their own power systems in-house. And so in 1999 the UPS industry, if you were a salesperson in the UPS industry in 1999, you couldn't not sell a UPS. There were so many people looking for somebody that sold UPS and that could help them get a UPS system before the end of the year. Everybody had to have it before New Year's Eve. And so... We were getting all these contracts, uh, at everybody was making us sign these contingencies that if if they write us a big multi-million dollar order for generators and UPSs and transfer switches and all this, that if our system was not online by midnight of New Year's Eve, then we got hit with uh, with a penalty. And these penalties were huge. Um, So as long as you were willing to accept that penalty, you, you just had so many orders coming at you. Basically, we filled all of our manufacturers as full as they could be until they were telling us they physically could not get out another UPS before the end of the year. Um, But that was just a great year to get into the industry, And, and that's when I got in, 1999. So it's been 20 years as of this year.
0: Many ask if Buy America Compliance is a big deal. I assure you, Buy America Compliance is a very big deal. If your projects are federally funded, or you're just plain patriotic, Unfortunately, people are often confused by the very similar names of the three acts directing patriotic consumerism and stimulate the U.S. economy. They are the Buy America Act, the Buy American Act, or simply Buy American. First, the Buy America Act imposes restrictions specific to federal funds administered by the Department of Transportation under the Surface Transportation Assistance Act passed in 1982. The Buy America Act simply requires mass transit projects to use steel, iron, and manufactured products that are produced in the United States. Separate and distinct from the Buy America Act is the easily confused Buy American Act passed by Congress in 1933 during the Great Depression and signed into law by President Hoover, also created to stimulate the decimated American economy. This act mandates that the United States government and federally funded projects give preference to American-made products over foreign vendors. Simple as that. Finally, to complicate matters, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, often referred to as ARRA, the Obama Stimulus Plan, are just simply Buy American, mandates that final products purchased for the ARRA funded public buildings and works projects must prove that 100% of the product's components are made in the United States. Certainly all three Buy America dot 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 programs sound similar and lead to confusion. But in fact their differences, albeit subtle, are uniquely specific. Patriotism aside, you can rest assured DSPM is fully Buy America Act, Buy American Act, and Buy American compliant, ensuring your project's requirements are met whether in transportation, federal or commercial building, or a local public school. So, what does it take to comply with federal mandates? First, the emergency lighting inverter must be manufactured in the United States, and second, most if not all of the product's components must also be manufactured in the US. So, if only 49% of a manufacturer's parts cost is domestic, the device is likely not by America or by American compliant. The good news is DSPM is fully compliant. Over half of our components costs are domestic, and 100% of DSPM's inverters are built right here in the good old USA, ensuring DSPM is by American and by America compliant, relieving you of just another burden, distraction or concern. Before we continue, if you ever need help with any of your projects, you can reach DSPM toll free at 877-377-6769. Rest assured our team is professional and understands our technology as well as your needs. Most importantly, DSPM is always at the ready and here to help. Let's return to our conversation with today's guest. Uh, it, this is one of those interesting industries. You know, your background where you were in audio, uh, reprographics, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, visible technologies. UPS inter- inverters, they just sit in the dark shadows of a room somewhere and no one knows they exist until you need them. So it, the lure of, of getting into that business is interesting to me because many people don't even know it exists. So you were, by, by a stroke of luck, you found the uh the UPS business
1: and and that's exactly it and it's kind of you know i i didn't know if we should go as far back as 5 years old in the transistor radio in our talk today <laughs> but it is kind of a unique story that uh I, I've had a passion for it since I was a kid, and then I took that passion and and incorporated it into, you know, the first thing that every kid is proud to achieve is to get their first car. And I, I earned that car on my own, and I was so proud of it, and I wanted to put that stereo system in it. And, and you know, I continued with the audio and figured I'll go into electrical engineering, and it's just really neat how how... I ended up in the UPS industry, and it's really neat how I've seen the UPS industry grow from 1999 to where we are now in 2019. It's really been fun.
0: Adam, thank you for your time today. And my friends, join us next week as we continue our discussion with Adam Hirschchild as we explore the incredible opportunity of providing emergency backup power to today's electric rail systems. Well, that brings today's episode of Power That Matters to a close. Certainly, none of this is possible without your participation. Next week, join us here at Power That Matters as we continue to discuss emergency power with experts from around the country. If you have any questions you want answered or topics you'd like discussed, please email them to me at tbanks at dspmanufacturing.com. Also, If you need help with any projects, simply call DSPM toll free at 877-377-6769. Our team understands our technology, your needs, and is here to help. Again, thank you for making all we do possible. From all of us at DSPM to you, our partners in ensuring the lights are on when they matter most in an emergency. Be well and never forget, DSPM is here with power that matters.